everyone, it's Aviva Romani, and this is Kindred Cast, unfiltered conversations with the business and cultural leaders who shape the world we live in. Kindred Cast is a production of Kindred Media, powered by Lion Tree, the global investment and merchant bank. For more insightful content, including our podcasts, newsletters, and events, and to get in touch with us, search for Kindred Media wherever you're listening to this. Hi, I'm Alex Michael, co-head of Lion Tree Growth. And today we have an amazing guest, a surprise guest, I would say. Surprise guest. Live in Salt Lake City. It's Tim Ferriss. Tim Ferriss is on the program. Tim is, as many of you know, the author of The 4-Hour Workweek, which remarkably, Tim, came out 15 years ago. Yeah, something like that. April 2007. Which... I don't want to label you, but it was a claim to fame of sorts, I would say. You've done a lot of since, but... Yeah, no one expected the to do anything, but that was what put me on the map, and then to the extent that I'm on the map, yeah. So you did the four-hour work week, but then you went on and did another four New York Times bestsellers, inclusive of the four-hour work week. We'll talk about some of that. And then, of course, you're known now, I would say, for the podcast, mm-hmm. The Tim Ferriss Show, which I checked on the old podcast machine that you have... <laughs> 576 episodes. Yeah. Yeah, crazy. You've been talking a lot. A lot of talking. A lot of talking. Haunting my listeners' dreams. (laughs) Well, (laughs) get ready, audience, to be haunted today by Tim Ferriss. So, Tim, welcome to KindredCast. Thank you for having me. It's amazing to have you here. I've been a fan for a long time. Thank you. Probably since 2007, when you broke onto the scene with the four-hour work week. So, it's 2022. A lot has changed. You were 29 when yeah, you wrote that book. I had more hair back then. <laughs> if, audience, if you can see Tim, he has very little hair. Very, but, very but little. That's generous. Yes. Very debonair. Oh, thank you. And Tim, when you wrote that in 2007, it took really work and life by storm in terms mm-hmm. of how people could see it. It was really a revolutionary idea. And this was before Zoom and remote work and certainly the pandemic. And so where I wanted to start was how has that aged in your mind? And especially in the last couple of years when, frankly, a lot of things you talked about have come to life in a weird way thanks to the pandemic, which hopefully we're getting out of. But I just want to see where your headspace is now with that seminal work and where we are today and where we're going to go with it. Happy to give it a stab. I would say, uh, first, I'm astonished on one level that the book still sells as well as it does. I mean, it was published in 2007, then revised in 2009. But in, I think, 2017, it was the most highlighted nonfiction book on Kindle. And the tools per se, like the actual recommendations, like go to my PC are outdated. But the principles I think that were laid out, which to be fair, were not things I invented. They were just, I guess, exercises in trend spotting for me. But the idea that using technology, you could determine or multiply the lifestyle value of each dollar you make by controlling the where, the when, the with whom, et cetera, has certainly applied in the pandemic. And we've seen as you mentioned, that with the explosion of Zoom and the ubiquity of some of these other tools. So it's aged well on a principle level, I think. So thank God. Well, what, <laughs> thank God it's not the all, checks keep coming in. Yeah. It's yeah. not all obsolete. Yeah. 
But did you think about it during these last couple of years? I was onto something early. The idea that we have, and I'd be curious if you think it persists. It was very much a nomadic. We were stuck in our houses or we went somewhere, but we weren't in a workplace, certainly. Is that here to stay, do you think? Are we going to honor what came out of this pandemic of remote? Because that was a big yeah. part of this. What were the key tenants again, just so we refresh the audience? Yeah, sure. So the key tenants are pretty simple. The key tenants, it's laid out in this acronym, D-E-A-L, deal. So just to make it easy to remember, D was definition. So in effect, defining the outcomes that you want to aim for in part using this rubric of what I call lifestyle design, sort of working backwards from what you want your life to look like instead of building a business and then having your life be whatever seeps through the cracks. And in the process of doing that, looking at your inputs and doing the 80-20 analysis to identify the things that are sort of disproportionately contributing to your positive outcomes. You can do that with sales analysis. There are a lot of ways to do it. That's the definition piece. Then elimination, so getting rid of as much dross, anything that is not contributing to those primary inputs. Automation, this is where a lot of the technology comes in, which at the time was compared to now. very 2007. Yeah, I mean, very primitive. And I was writing in 2005, 2006. So very, very primitive compared to what we have now. Automating as much as possible. And then liberation was really looking at how you can then utilize those systems that you've built. You could build those systems as a photographer, you could build those systems as a lawyer, you could build those systems really across almost any career path, so to speak. And a, a large component of that was mobility. Mobility and what I called geo-arbitrage at the time, which was taking advantage of discrepancies in, say, currencies and so on, where you can utilize talent around the world. To answer your question directly, though, during the pandemic, uh, certainly in the early phases, I was too concerned with following current events and making sure my family wasn't going to well, be me, eliminated. Last night, you started preparing in early February, if we recall. Yeah, I went March into lockdown was when, early yeah. Feb. And fortunate to have friends who, a lot of them are macro investors who track these things very closely. Yeah. And working in tech, or I should say investing in early stage startup companies and early stage startups, I guess is the easiest way to say it, since 2008, just having a lot of exposure to exponential growth. And I was like, oh, this is going to be a problem. And really? this really is You're not going to be contained. So lobbied very early for the cancellation of South by Southwest. I got unending grief for that at the time. You can look back at the comments, but I think in retrospect, it was probably Patient. a smart thing to do. However, once settling into the pandemic quarantine, which I guess after a while, most people did, I had Cal Newport, who's a writer for The New Yorker, also a great author and interesting guy in his own right, reach out about writing a piece called Revisiting the 4-Hour Workweek. And sort of how, if you extend some of the trend lines that were identified or maybe just highlighted, could we have built more resilience into people and companies? I think the answer is yes. So if you look at the investing just for a second, I mean, at this event where we're sitting, I mean, there are many people who are much better at investing overall. We'll but, talk about it. You're, but, you're actually, yeah. no, I didn't say that, but you've invested in Uber, Facebook, Duolingo, Alibaba, you were early at Shopify. So we'll talk yeah, about that, yeah. but you're not bad. Not bad. And I owe my fans the thanks for finding a lot of those companies. So early on, once they became familiar, let's just say this, the first like million readers or so, with what I valued, what I was looking for, what I believed, again, not alone, I wasn't forging this first person over the hill in any way, but they were the ones who then recommended I look at Shopify. When Shopify had eight employees. What year is uh, this? This was 2008, 2009. 
and it's super early. And then Duolingo, same thing. They knew I was interested in language learning. So my fans were the ones who highlighted these companies for me. So I do think then if you take a look at some of these earlier companies, Shopify would be one, Automatic, which ones were WordPress.com and WooCommerce and so on would be another that I became an advisor to quite a long time ago. They had already decided to embrace distributed talent. And when the pandemic hit, they were much less affected. In fact, in some ways they were helped a lot. Now, putting aside this secular tailwinds of e-commerce and people getting squeezed from offline retail to online for Shopify, let's say. In short, yeah, been a crazy two years, three years. Crazy two years. Do you think we're going to persist in the things we've seen there? Uh, yeah. I think that um, some companies will. I think that a lot- Four-day work weeks, maybe not four hours, but certainly we're seeing four-day work People need weeks. to compete a lot more than they, I think, anticipated they would. So with what people are calling the great resignation and people realizing, oh, wow, actually it's nice to be outside of a city for a part of the year. <laughs> I think the companies that want to retain and attract the best talent are going to have to pay up. You're right? saying pay up in lifestyle. You're saying to be competitive, you don't have to go to an office? Yeah. I'm seeing that certainly with a lot of my friends who work at places like Facebook and Google and so on. I mean, a lot of them are like, if you force me to go back to the office full time, I'm going to quit. And these are very, very, very good people. So I do think that if there is going to be a sort of retention of these facets of work that we've seen in the last few years with COVID, like the mobility and work from home, that it's going to be driven by the workforce. And maybe companies want to get ahead of it by being really proactive in their policies. I also think a lot of people want to forget the pandemic and they want to go back to what they consider normal, right? right. I live in Austin. I've been there for five years. There was a freeze, you know, last year and catastrophic results, people dying in their homes, dying in their cars, you know, trying to stay warm, a complete disaster from a municipal water perspective. And I've talked to people afterwards who are like smart, well-off entrepreneurs. And I'm like, do you now have extra water? Do you now have backup generator? They're like, no. It's never going to happen again. We talked about this last night, which is there's this lubricant and Malcolm Gladwell talks about this. That there's a sort of trust factor in life that yeah. basically makes us survive and reduces friction. You don't seem to be that person that trusts the system, clearly. Well, I don't trust certainty in any system. We just have too many counterexamples. So yeah. maybe I've spent too much time reading like Nassim Taleb books. I don't know. But 100-year storm systems and weather events are happening every year, every two years. So I think our ability to cope with uncertainty has not yet overridden these older labels that we have. And I would also say that not everyone is built to work from home. There are psychological challenges and there can be depression and other issues that if you don't have systems and coping strategies in advance, which I also talked about quite a bit in the four-hour work week, although people glossed over it, you can get yourself into trouble psychologically, psychoemotionally. And for a lot of people, certainly it's like, <laughs> if you have kids and your kids are at home, how well can you coexist running a business or doing your job with your kids at home? Do you have boundaries? Do you have rules? space, yeah. resources? Exactly. I mean, all these exactly. things. Yeah. So, so I do think that in some fashion, a lot of these things will persist, especially for forward-looking company and people who realize this is not the last time we're going to have some disruption. But you don't like think culture is impacted by that. That's one of the big pushbacks against yeah. this, right? That culture of companies sustain them. It's what people sign on to. Great culture, at least. Yeah. And it's very hard to foster. It's hard. It's not impossible. Though. There are companies like Automatic with two Ts, which was founded by Matt Mullenweg. So Automatic has been distributed first since the get-go. And they've had to answer the question, how do you create, foster, and hire for culture when people are not physically in the same place. Companies don't have to do that, but if we hit 
these very large bumps in the road like COVID. And I don't think it's going to be the last example of something, certainly in the next like 10 years. Uh-oh, okay. Well, I mean, it's like, yeah. I'm not Nostradamus. I'm just yeah. saying chances are like- You're prepared though. Either way, yeah, you're like, prepared. People, I mean, we have to go here, yeah. but it's like you're, as we're recording this, everything is happening, unfolding in the Ukraine. And right. as far as I understand, the domestic intelligence and a lot of high-level officials in Russia never thought it was going to happen. So they did not have plans in advance for right. contending with the ramifications of, say, sanctions, right? Right. Oops. Yeah. Russia is not alone in having blind spots like that. So it's just to say, I do think companies that are prepared and people who are prepared to work remotely are ultimately going to have an anti-fragile advantage over people. Do you, do you think, I mentioned nomadic earlier, do you think people are going to be more nomadic? Is this a signal perhaps that big cities should be concerned that people are not going to be in these big cities, which are often the hubs for these things? Yeah. If I were a city... I would be concerned about attracting and retaining talent. We're getting a little off piece here, but yeah. I think city-based tokens and things like that, actually incentivizing people to benefit from this ecosystem they contribute to. I think that cities and states are going to have to compete for talent with increased mobility and cities will still be alive and well, which is why like I was talking to one of my friends who's got more resources than I do and he's like, Thinking about buying real estate, I was like, yeah, right now, this was in the beginning of COVID. I was like, buy Fifth Avenue equivalent in places that are getting hammered, like Paris or whatever. So you believed in the comeback. You, you oh, just thought yeah, that absolutely. Because people, you've probably seen this too. A lot of folks are like, I've spent a weekend in the mountains and it's beautiful. I would love to live in the mountains. I'm like, that's a huge leap. Right? Yeah. And then they get there and they're like, this is amazing. Oh my God, I'm definitely going to stay here. And then they're like, let's go see a show or let's go to the th- you know, the, Oops. <laughs> you know, let's go to the orchestra yeah. and it's like, oh wait, no, that doesn't exist. And yeah, if you go to New York City now, I mean, it's like COVID never happened. Right, right. So there are cities that are really resilient. I think there are cities now that people have distributed and done taste testing in different cities. There are places in the US, certainly Austin, Miami. I mean, there are many reasons why those are appealing too. But then you have cities outside the US like Lisbon and yeah, you know, certainly in the US kind of sort of, you know, Puerto Rico is exploding. So people have had the opportunity to see what it is like to not be tethered to a single location. So I think cities will be fine. But if people are forced to be in one location, like 365, it's not going to work. I think it's going to be harder. They've gotten a taste of it for sure. Yeah, I think it's going to be harder to compete. Okay. Yeah. There's two things I learned about you in talking earlier. One was your prolific investing, which I guess is out there, but really didn't appreciate it. And I think it's much more than people understand. So I want to understand how you think about it and why yeah. you do it and how you see these signals for these great companies. The other is you touched on a little with the token, which is your big NFT metaverse web three guy. And <laughs> yeah. I want to understand why you think that, but let's start with the investing. Dangerous waters. Yeah, here we go. We won't go. This is, <laughs> we're going to keep it quick, but I'm not an A-Rush. Where do you get the signals? You mentioned your crowdsourcing, which is pretty amazing. We don't all have millions of listeners and followers, Tim, no. so sorry. But that aside, what are you seeing in these companies that get you excited? What is an entrepreneur who comes to you now exhibiting or entrepreneurs, plural, that gets you excited and potentially investing? I have such a simplistic knuckle dragging approach to all this. It's not going to impress anybody, I don't think. And it's not replicable. So I'm not going to imply that what I do is replicable widely at all. I have an audience. They tend to be very well-educated, tech-savvy people. And if you believe, as I do, that oftentimes the things that rich people do are going to be the things that everybody does in 10 years, or the things that the nerds do on the weekends in their own time are going to be the things that tens of millions and hundreds of millions of people do 10 years from now, as I do, then it's my audience, largely. right? Right. So I get to see what these people are excited about and then investigate. And let's just say, putting some of the obvious examples aside, like Shopify, once I look at these 
companies, it's really simple for me because I have an audience and I want to make sure that I can increase the value of my investments <laughs> as directly as possible. So is this something that solves a pain point for me? Does it actually solve a problem or fulfill some desire that I have? From one to 10, no seven allowed, how comfortable would I be promoting this to my audience? And it has to be an eight, nine or 10. Right. And, but you're saying then, that there's a lot of you, Tim, because I feel like venture gets into a bit of a box in the sense like, oh, what do I think or what does my wife think or yeah. my child? Because that's not the world per se, but you're saying there's a lot of you. Yeah. This is what I often hear. And I think there's a lot of validity to that. If you have hundreds of millions or billions of dollars of assets under management, and you need to deploy that capital. You can't do what I'm doing. But as an angel, I can do that. It seems to work. I mean, but what I about have, the people? What about the signal? You're doing yeah. it early. What's the signal? What about a person is getting you excited? Can they, do they have the mental discipline and frameworks to execute without getting too carried away if they're in love with a given idea? Can they steel man counter arguments? If I ask them, for instance, as I typically do, I'm like, okay, let's say this company has failed. Three years from now, it failed. What are the top three or four reasons or contributing factors that would lead to it failing? Like if they can't answer There's that, that trust factor again, you're going negative. That's so interesting how you yeah. think because you're not thinking about the success of it. You're thinking if things go wrong, which is how you seem to be programmed. You're in the minority yeah. of the populace. I think it's how I'm programmed. And in part, because I've seen many companies, I don't want to name names, but like many companies that had the tiger by the tail, they're experiencing explosive growth. And then they just become a supernova of capital destruction because they start to believe they're invulnerable or they end up being surrounded by about people who laugh at all their jokes and tell them how smart they are. And they, just, they don't have anyone to try to pick apart their arguments. And more importantly, they don't have people around them who cultivate the ability in them and support the ability for them to pick apart their own arguments and not to beat a dead horse here. But I think Toby of Shopify is one of the best in the world at this. He's it's done pretty well, incredibly disciplined. Yeah. So you want to see these people be prepared for adversity, basically, and sense that in them, but also have that thought out enough such that... And not just be prepared for adversity... But all right, I'm going to pull out a Desmond Tutu quote. I'm going to butcher it. But he says that we can pull people out of the river and pull people out of the river. At some point, we should go upstream and figure out why people are falling in the river. And I had an employee at one point where, I, and I said to another employee, or actually no, to someone who was advising me, and I said, she's really, really good at putting out fires. And the answer was, well, maybe she should be better at preventing the fires. And I think that good CEOs to be able to navigate preemptively around these potentially fatal mistakes or crippling mistakes need to be able to hypothesize what these worst case scenarios could look like. And the best CEOs I've met are really able to do that. So, so name names there. Who are some executives that you admire? I guess you mentioned yeah. Shopify, but some others. Yeah, yeah. I'm an investor in OpenSea. I think Devin and those guys are very good. NFT Marketplace. Yeah, NFT Marketplace. I think they're very good. Garrett and Travis of Uber were excellent. All the best folks. I was an investor in Wealthfront. The leadership of Wealthfront has been very good at that. Basically, the leadership of any company that I've invested in, I think Luis Von An and Severin Hacker, at best name ever, by the way, Severin Hacker, the co-founder of Duolingo, such a good name. <laughs> Those two are extremely, extremely good. I was the first advisor to TaskRabbit way back in the day when I was run my errand. I think Leah was very good at spotting things in advance and being able to spot the hazards in the train. Right. Like two, three, four years out, or at least speculate, but from an informed place about those. I think almost anyone who has done really well has been able to do that. I guess it becomes self-fulfilling in a way. They're great talent. The companies become great and we see them as successes. Right? Yeah. Very few of the companies I can think of just had 
green lights all the way straight down. No, I think that's fair to say. <laughs> Staying on this topic, you've done 576 podcasts. I'm sure some of these executives have been on your podcast. Who are some of your favorite podcast guests you've had, I guess, in this business genre? And within that, any amazing pearls of advice? We try to take away things here that we can live with. On the business side. Yeah, let's do that because you have so much you could do. I saw Schwarzenegger on there the other day. Yeah, Hugh Jackman. Yeah, Hugh Jackman. And, all that. Yeah. and a lot of names that nobody would recognize. Right? Sure. Well, let's see. On the business side, and this is going to just be whatever pops into my head because there have been so many of them. Uh, I think people should pay attention to Eric Schmidt. Uh, he's been on twice. I think his views on the, <laughs> not to completely reinforce constantly the accurate perception of me as being like hypervigilant and looking at the worst case scenarios, but some of the downstream implications of AI and future of warfare, I think people should pay attention to Eric Schmidt. And I think that's a very, very good idea. Again, not the most uplifting thing to talk about, but <laughs> there we are. Humans We're like back. To, humans like to <laughs> We're fight back. one another. I don't think yes. that's going to change anytime soon. Let's see. Other pearls. One thing that has come up again and again, and I can mention other folks, Matt Mullenweg of Automatic has been on a number of times. I think he is a great example of a highly effective, happy person. He's very good at executing at a very high level while maintaining many interests and not being one-dimensional. About their work, you're saying outside of work. Yeah, he's fascinated by photography, he plays saxophone. That's very hard to do. No. That's really hard to do. That's uh, a 24 cent, especially now these days. Yeah, it's very know. challenging to do. Because I'm not interviewing these people first and foremost just to get better at entrepreneurship, building a company, or investing. That's fine. But you can model a lot of people who are great at those things, who have terrible lives. Yeah. Whose families can't stand them. Terrible lives. And so if you don't take the full context into consideration and you model some of their behaviors in the business world, maybe some of the disasters that they have in their personal lives are side effects of those business habits. So that's something I often talk to people about failures. I want to talk about the hard times. Well, as you can't check these things at the door. I think that's something I learned along the way. It's 24 seven as a human and work is a piece of it. Yeah, for sure. So those were some great interviews. I'm reading here that the observer and other media have called Tim the Oprah of audio. How do you feel about that? Yeah, you get a car. I love a car. You have had 700 million downloads, but here's the question, which is you obviously started with writing. You wrote a book in 2007. You've wrote several books that have all been bestsellers. What's it mean that you've embraced podcasting like this and audiobooks as well in terms of a creator, an author like yourself using that medium? What is the signal to that in terms of the broader entertainment ecosystem? Big one, Oof, right at yeah, you. I'm just, I used to have a mullet on Long Island. This may be above my pay grade, but I'll, I'll take a stab at it. And this is going to be so disappointing as an answer, but I will say like, I scratch my own itch on all this stuff. So I like operating in audio. I like consuming audio. I think I operate reasonably well in audio compared to other things. And that's why I ended up deciding to try podcasting for six episodes and see if I liked it. When was your first podcast? How long ago? 2014. That's early. Yeah. It's around serial time, right? Might have even been before serial. I'm not sure exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So you embraced it. Was it expression of interest? Bill Simmons doesn't write anymore. You still write some. You have a newsletter, et cetera. But did you find it easier I also was looking at the market. So because I have the books, I was able to see which formats were growing at what rates or declining at what rates. And audio was by far the fastest grower. So I knew audio was growing. That wasn't the main reason for doing it, but it was supportive of my decision to experiment. I also had just launched at that time, The 4-Hour Chef. That was 2012. And before I launch a book, I always talk to people who have launched in the last, say, 12 months. And I say, what were you advised to do that didn't pull its weight? And what did you do that you think is in a scent? Like what format, what tool, what channel that is undervalued 
And the answer that came back around, say, 2011, 2012 was podcasts. So, okay, I'm going to focus on podcasts then. For this launch, that's going to be my primary focus yeah. was in 2012, which was early. And it had a huge impact on the book launch itself. And I really enjoyed the longer format with folks like Rogan and Marin and Nerdist and a handful of others. So I was able to see also vis-a-vis these people I interviewed, you know, friends, that the podcasts were having significant impact on sales velocity of books. So I think the Oprah audio piece just comes from the fact that if people are listening to a podcast for two hours and they're reasonably complex or nuanced conversations, you're filtering for readers. So in the case of Oprah and her book club and so on, like in this case, people who listen to my podcast are readers. They read. If I say, I think this book is absolutely outstanding, they'll go to it'll it. routinely sell out. Well, on it's Amazon. a symbiotic overlapping with the print that you've brought to audio and hopefully I've probably grown your audience significantly, I would think. Oh yeah. The podcast audience is so much larger. Well, number one, the audience per se is larger than the readership of the books for sure. Cause my books are freaking long. They're like four to 600, 700 pages. So they're long books. Secondly, authors, unless they have another channel, have no means of directly communicating with their audience. They don't. They're running right. through publishers and distributors. They're blind. So Tim, you mentioned that authors have difficulty getting directly to their consumer. However, you've continued to use intermediaries or at least big publishers or other mm -hmm. platforms to get to your audiences. Well, I would say it's both end for me. So I have used traditional publishers for the five books. I've also carved out, in some cases, audio to pursue on my own, which I recommend to all authors who can pull it off. And in the case of the podcast, I shouldn't say open source, but it's an RSS feed. So I am available anywhere. So I'm not using an intermediary in the sense that I'm using a network or someone to control facets of what I do on the podcast in any way. The other point I would make is that even with the podcast, if you can communicate via audio to your audience, the people who subscribe, the, at least in the case of mine, I don't try to make podcasts that appeal to my whole audience. Each episode, I assume my goal, actually, I should say, is that say 10% of my audience will love the episode. And that through a rotation, like once a month or once every two months, every listener of the podcast will find one episode they share with like 20 people. But it's not an effective means of communicating with your whole audience in a timely way. For that, I think email is still king. So when I want to move the needle on anything, it's not social media, which is like throwing a golf ball into the rapids at the Grand Canyon, along with 40,000 other golf balls and hoping they spot yours. It's email because you'll hear the counter argument was like, well, kids are using TikTok and this and this and this and this. And I'm like, yeah, until they get a job. And then guess what? They use email. Back on the email. <laughs> back on the, do you pick all your guests? I pick all my guests. Yeah. I mean, some get suggested. I'd say 70 or 80% come from past guests and I do outreach. So I decide who I want to talk to and then I reach out. And in some cases, people will come to me and I'm like, oh yeah, that, that could be a good guest. So last podcast question, which is where is this going, Tim? I feel like you're as well positioned as anyone given your prominence and use of the medium for so long. What's the next step for audio? Obviously, we have audiobooks, we have podcasting, music has always been there. We're in a streaming environment. Yeah. Where do you see this world? Because podcasting industry, as we talked about, is not that big. It's a billion and a half dollars. Yeah. Audiobooks is actually 2x the size, so it's quite big. But where is this going? Is there going to be innovation? Is people, you can't get through now. You yeah. couldn't start your show today and I think have the same success personally. It'd be harder, yeah. It would be a lot harder. So where is this going? What excites you about the future and where is it going? Ooh, big questions. What excites me about that future? It's going to get harder and harder to compete. So that's the opposite. I mean, it's being professionalized. The one person shops like mine, it's like I have one full-time employee. We handle all our ads internally. We, we do everything internally. It's going to get harder and harder to do that because you're competing against well-capitalized networks or certainly companies that have multi-year plans for cross-promotion and so on. 
I think discovery and curation are the challenges. I don't know how many new podcasts are getting launched a week. I was told at some point, so who knows if it's factual, but it's like 10 to 30,000 new podcasts launch every week. And in that sea of options with that paradox of choice, how do you stand out? Or as a consumer, how the hell do you find what That's you right. want to listen to? That's right. Do you depend on a Spotify or an Apple? Maybe. A lot of people will do that to serve things up Pandora style. Like if you like this, you may also like this, or I guess like Amazon style as well, which is where I think Amazon actually has a huge advantage with Audible because they can cross market amongst formats. Right. So they have actually a huge, huge advantage, I think in many ways. But I'm very curious to see how people will attempt to solve that problem. I'm extrapolating from what you said that the big platforms will be the source of that innovation. Is that fair? Maybe. Or maybe it's like or a lot of people used to depend on New York Times book critics to choose books. Yep. Maybe people just start depending on a handful of folks like me who they have trusted Curators. over 10 years. Yeah. yeah. So I don't know what form There's the Oprah take. again. There you go, Tim. Which is another reason why the newsletter is so important. And I also enjoy doing it. I'm never going to beat some people who are comedians used to entertaining on video on YouTube. I'm just not going to beat those people and I'm not going to really enjoy it. People like what they're good at. Again, this isn't like a macro commentary or a prediction for the next three to five years, but it's like, just stick with what you're good at and scratch your own edge. Otherwise, you're not going to have the longevity or the stamina. You have to, to enjoy like, it. And you have to like it. Meaningful. Yeah. So for me, it's... So you're doing it. You love what you're doing. Yeah, I'm doing it. So switching off podcasts for a second, but you have written most recently a lot about psychedelics. Can you just give us a little taste of that's like LSD and mushrooms, those type of things, right? Those would be two classical psychedelics. Okay. Mm -hmm. So for this generally business crowd that listens to this mm -hmm. and, and others, what are you trying to do with that? You mentioned in talking about CEOs and being happy and just the stresses of life. Is that where you're going with this? This was a reaction to that, but please describe what you're saying with that yeah. and then how it applies. Well, the short answer is always been interested in neuroscience. I have Alzheimer's and Parkinson's on both sides of my family. So I was actually undergrad neuroscience before I transferred to East Asian language and language acquisition and that kind of thing. The psychedelics, I think, represent, this is why it's been my kind of sole philanthropic focus for the last five years, supporting early stage research. Also some later stage, like phase three trials for MDMA-assisted psychotherapy for PTSD specifically. But to give you an idea of why this interests me, well, first on the personal side, I've had friends and family die of various addictions. So Percocet plus alcohol, alcohol, fentanyl, you name it. So from a treatment of addiction perspective, psychedelics seem to hold tremendous promise. And I'll come back to why. On the PTSD side, if we look at the phase two and phase three trials, so this is MDMA, otherwise known as ecstasy, take it and then they do related psychotherapy that's sort of the therapeutic wrapper around this. For the phase two, I might begin the numbers slightly off, but people can look this up. You have people who are suffering from complex PTSD, treatment resistant, They've had the diagnosis, I think, for a median duration of 17 plus years, 17 point something years. They do two or three sessions of MDMA-assisted psychotherapy, and six months later, I want to say 65, 68% no longer meet the diagnosis of PTSD. Wow. Now, that defies almost any conventional explanation within the realm of psychiatry because we operate mostly in a world where we suppress symptoms, not entirely, but largely. So how could it be then that you deliver two or three doses and then six months later see persistent, actually in some cases, improving effects? It doesn't make any sense within the current paradigm. So that's interesting to me. This is like not waiting to put out the fire, but actually getting to the source. Yeah. And you see similar durability of effect with psilocybin as found in magic mushrooms. But for the studies, it's synthesized on depression. And many of my family have been crippled by depression for their entire lives. So I've unfortunately a lot of experience with very debilitating depression. And with 
compounds like psilocybin, you see one to three doses and you see durability of effect for six to 12 months. How could this be? The short answer is, at least one of the theories, is that these compounds help you to actually see the narratives and beliefs that are driving your behaviors and your thought loops and compulsive behaviors. And you are then in a window of plasticity, able to rewrite those stories. So you're kind of upgrading your operating system as opposed to just doing a patch on a bug that lasts for a limited period of time. The results are really beyond anything anyone has ever seen in psychiatry or treatment of so-called intractable issues. And what's fascinating on top of that, and I mean, there's some tremendous science being done in this field. If you look at depression, if you look at chronic anxiety, if you look at OCD, if you look at eating disorders like anorexia nervosa, if you look at opioid dependence, tobacco addiction, they all seem to have some underlying similarities, which are loops of beliefs and behaviors that are rigid or compulsive. And so these compounds seem to be able to provide, again, a window, it doesn't last forever, of plasticity within which you're able to overwrite or edit those. So to be very clear, this is medicinal. This is not a recreational thing. This is not a joke. You are no. seeing this as a potential long-term solve for a whole host of mental issues. Yeah. And there are also- and is this something you're doing now? Like you do it, you eat the dog food. <laughs> well, or eat the I mean, magic dog yeah, food. I, I will uh, say, much- just to tread lightly yeah. from a legal perspective. Sorry. Like I yes, these things have saved my life. So okay. I will say I'm not speculating. But I'm also not saying that everything I believe based on my personal experience applies widely to millions of people, which is why you have to do the science. I was one of the founding funders of the first dedicated research center in the world for psychedelics, which is at Imperial College London. Also helped fundraise and also provided funds for Johns Hopkins to develop the first in the US, which is still the largest. And there's incredible work being done. There are also potentially applications to neurodegenerative diseases like Alzheimer's because some of these compounds seem to elicit dendrite growth in neurons that atrophy within some of these conditions like depression. So So if you're listening to this and you're interested in what you're talking about, A, I assume you can find writings and podcasts you've done. Are there other resources? Do you talk to your doctor? The doctors aren't going to know anything about it generally because they're schedule one. These are still illegal compounds for the most part, with the exception of ketamine, which has some interesting applications for acute suicidal ideation, as well as chronic pain and chronic depression. But the resources I would recommend are a handful at this point. So How to Change Your Mind by Michael Pollan is a great starting point. I know Michael really well. We've actually collaborated on a few projects at UC Berkeley. If you just don't want to dive right into a four or 500 page book, you can listen to, I've done many interviews on the subject. So I've done three with Michael Pollan. So I'd say start with those. If you want to dig into specific like ethnobotanical aspects of it, I did an interview with Dennis McKenna, which is quite interesting. If you want to look at the addiction side of things, Dr. Gabor Mate, who's done a lot of incredible work in BC with opiates specifically, then you could listen to my interview with Gabor Mate. There's and a lot to tap I'll give yeah. one last one, which yeah. is if you want to see actual session footage of MD assisted psychotherapy for trauma, like sexual abuse, violent trauma. Then there is a film called Trip of Compassion, which I went to Israel to help the filmmakers launch digitally because it's so impactful that shows you actual before and after footage of people going through this process. It's not a panacea. It doesn't work for everybody, but it's pretty remarkable to see what can be done with things that have been plaguing people for 10, 15, 20 years. And this gets into what you were talking about, just how you design the way you work, which is you're just interested. You see a source and you start digging deeper and digging deeper and here you are. There's an expression within medicine, we'll say like 50% of what we know is wrong. We just don't know which 50%. Right. So I assume we're in the dark ages still with a lot of things. I mean, it wasn't that long ago that we operated on infants without anesthesia. So I get excited when I think I'm seeing these sort of glimmers of 
fraying edges in these paradigms that we assume are correct. I love testing assumptions. You can do that at startups. You can do that in medicine. You can do it in all sorts of places. But we're so full of shit in so many ways. We just don't know it yet. For someone who's as prolific as you are and has so many different ideas, do you think you're getting better as a creative person? Is it someone who comes up with output that resonates with a large audience as you age? My thought is I go back and I read some of what I've written, including certain sections of the four hour work week. And I'm like, I think that's kind of for the professional sport of writing that style at that age. I don't think it's a forever thing. I do think when you look at entrepreneurs, especially early stage tech, and it's like, it's a full contact professional sport. It favors the young. However, I think as I've become older and have felt more and more secure in myself, in my financial position in the world and so on, I care less about any type of acting. And I think that is a superpower. I think I've become much more authentically, and not that I was pretending before, but I was always guarded on some level before, and there was more fear factor. Another reason that I preserved my open RSS, I can't be canceled. Nobody can cancel me. And that gives me tremendous freedom. So I think I have become better at being very, very, very authentic with my audience about very hard, very uncomfortable things. And I do think that your success in life can be measured in the number of uncomfortable conversations you're willing to have, even if it is me recording, say, a solo episode on the podcast. And I regularly take breaks to study the craft. I still do that. You don't just pick up a mic and go or... You, you, no, these and things. if I ever feel like I'm just mailing it in, which is rare, but if I feel like I'm leaning in that direction, I either cut back on my frequency or I take a break and I go back to the craft and I you study. Recharge. I study people. I will get transcripts of people's interviews and I'll study how they do things. That's what I think people don't realize. And the amount of interviewing, the amount of work that goes in, this is the 10,000 hours or whatever you subscribe to, but you've been doing so much work behind the scenes to get to these points. Yeah, I mean, I take it. If I'm going to ask people to give me two hours of their lives, this finite resource of time to listen to something, it better be good. You're going to bring it. It better be good, yeah. Or otherwise I'm robbing them of the most important resource they have. And I just think that's the terrible thing to do. I totally agree. Hopefully we're not doing that here. I'm scared. Uh, Okay, let's learn about Tim for a second here. We get towards the end of our time together, sadly. But what is, so lightning round of things that we'll learn about you. What's a book that's not yours that's maybe not, well, it can be anything. What's a book you recommend or suggest or that you've read recently that you're like, this is amazing? I read and listen to, I consume a lot of books. I would say on the nonfiction side, there's a book called Awareness by Anthony DeMello. If you want a persistent feeling of peace or reduced noise for like two to three weeks, this book has that effect. I reread it regularly. It's not going to impact everybody the same way, but Awareness Awareness by Anthony DeMello, who was a psychotherapist and a Jesuit priest who passed away, I want to say maybe 20 years ago. That's a great one. I think there's a lot of power in fiction. A tremendous amount of power in fiction. For people who are nonfiction purists, they're like, ah, oh, fiction, I would just make That's it That's me, actually. Yeah, I don't so read any I, fiction. So I, I was that way for decades. If you just need like a light on-ramp, listen to Neil Gaiman's narration of the Graveyard book. There is an ensemble cast option. I think Neil is so good. Listen to that. If you want to then set foot into something that's a little more of a lift, but very gratifying on the sci-fi side, Exhalation, which is a collection of short stories by Ted Chiang, C-H-I-A-N-G. Phenomenal. If you've ever seen the movie Arrival, that was based on one of his short stories. And then on the kind of fantasy, the book that had maybe the most residual impact on me for probably a month is called Little, Big by a guy named John Crowley. You got to get past the first 100 
pages. By the time you get to the- <laughs> That's an investment. I, know, it's an investment. Yeah. I quit two or three times. My brother gave it to me and eventually I made it. Once you get to the talking fish, you know, you right. turned the corner. Don't give it away. All right. How about a podcast that is not yours? I'm not going to- Come on. I'm not just going to show my own show. Yeah. It makes me think of, what about Bob when uh, Dreyfus is in his office and he's like, there's this groundbreaking new book, Bob. Let me see if I can find it. It's all his own book on the shelf. And he's like, ah, yes, here it is. Hardcore history, hands down. Hardcore history. Hardcore history. By Who's Dan, that by? Dan Carlin. Okay. It's one of the best podcasts ever made. And, uh, just from the sheer amount of work required and to do what he does, I think he's phenomenal. You could start with Prophets of Doom. They're long. So this is an example of someone who has like broken every rule. He puts out a new episode every six to 12 months. That's it. Wow. And they're like audiobooks. So Prophets of Doom is a shorter one. It's like four hours to start with. If you want to do a series, Wrath of the Khans, which is about Genghis Khan or Genghis Khan, is phenomenal. Uh, okay. below, below your Hardcore mind. history. Hardcore history. TV show or movie, anything streaming that you're like, wow. Do you do that? Do oh, yeah. You, yeah, I do. You sit at home on Saturday sometimes well, and watch always, it. Yeah. I'm not, I, I don't I want to paint you that watching, way. I love watching. I think we're in a golden age. I don't know if it can be sustained. So what is it? What are you recommending? I mean, there's not going to be a super highbrow, but I think Schitt's Creek is genius. For yes. like just popping popcorn. Yes. Very light, light 20 airy. minute lift. I think it's also a really smart show. I think it's hilarious. It's yep. well done. I love yep. the story of the show. It was not an immediate hit. Like The Alchemist was a total failure when it first came out. And then I would say on the opposite end of the spectrum, I think Arcane on Netflix, League of Legends done by those guys is like a glimpse into the future of entertainment. I think. Okay. So those are a couple. If you want a movie that is a little older that a lot of people haven't seen that I think is fantastic, Un Profit, I'm sure I'm screwing it up, A Profit, which is a French film, beautifully shot, just really saturated color about, I want to say he's a Middle Eastern kid who goes to prison and is kind of adopted by the Corsican mafia. And it's about his ascent from the lowest of the low to the highest of the high. Great film. Okay. All right. These are good. You know, you don't go with the uh, Shit's Creek was sort of mainstream, but you've always got interesting stuff. All right. I promise the metaverse. So I've added this to my lightning rounds at the end, which is your favorite token. So you secretly become a prolific NFT, Web3, whatever you're doing. And you say you don't tout it. And uh, I don't like being my own bank. <laughs> I think that's overrated. Right. <laughs> <laughs> yes, that's what you said. You're like, I'm scared to be my own bank. I think people should be. First of all, you're clearly a believer in this world. Is that fair to say? I think that we are seeing glimpses of the future, and I think 99% of it is dog shit. <laughs> Wait, so this is- Pardon my yeah, French. Yeah. But I, I mean- I This think, is late 90s internet? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Like yeah. Google and Amazon are hiding in there, but there's also a lot of ridiculous stuff, which yeah. is fine. That's how it works. But you've been buying lots of it? I've bought some expensive JPEGs because I just think it's a fun way to step into the casino. And You're, casino's like, probably a good analogy. Yeah. And to like retain some veneer of credibility among people who are talking about it. But I do think that as ridiculous as some of these applications will seem five years from now, in hindsight, they were building the tooling and the architecture and the business models and the communities that will end up being very, very impactful. Will persist. Oh, and we'll see sure. the Amazon, Googles, that generation of this new Yeah, I mean, block, blockchain and, and smart contracts aren't going anywhere. Right. I mean, it's just a better way of doing so many things. So favorite token? I don't have a favorite token. You don't have a favorite token? No. But is OpenSea your favorite Web3 business? I would say, yeah, I mean, right now, that, that would probably be the case. They do not have an easy road ahead of them, but yeah. I, I do think they've executed really well considering their rate of growth, which is beyond anything I've ever seen yeah. in any startup ever. I mean, by orders of magnitude. I invest in mostly funds. I think I'm pretty good at recognizing the limits of my competency. 
And so at least 50% of what I own is just BTC and ETH exposure. I Got keep it. it super simple. Okay. I'm playing around with other stuff, but I will be experimenting a lot more as a creator. With those yeah, tools. I need to yeah. have skin in the game. Otherwise, I'm not going to have any marginally respectable appreciation for how this stuff works. So there's the evolution. There's your yeah. next creative you know, I just uh, launched my first NFT got revealed yesterday. So um, What was that? I did it with my friend Kevin Rose, who has something called the Proof Collective. Yeah. He's done an, an amazing job of executing. I think he's really at the forefront of a lot of this innovation. Doesn't get nearly the credit he should. He's very good at investing in any asset class, which is pretty nuts. But the NFT is pretty simple. None of the, the artist names were put out. And there were 20, I want to say, artists. People had to choose what they wanted to mint. They had to already own the proof NFT in order to get access to minting these. And then the names were all revealed yesterday. And there were a lot of big names, including some up-and-comers. My NFT was my first fiction piece. So I've never published fiction. So I published my first fiction short story on the background of an NFT that has an image on it. So if people- And this is, you can go buy it now? You can buy it on OpenSea now. Yeah. What's it trading? What's this going to set us back? Uh, Do you monitor it like minute by minute? No, 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 no. <laughs> All the proceeds are going to my foundation. So just, if I may take a second. Yes. What actually got me most excited about Web3 was the smart contract execution of royalties and secondary sales. So hypothetically, my foundation is really small. It's called the SciSafe Foundation. People can find it online, S-A-I-S-E-I. SciSafe Foundation is small. I deploy probably 50% at least of the money in the foundation every year. Like it's just like, it's just going. Put it in. Because a lot of these bets are time sensitive in the same way the startup would be time sensitive. So I don't have an endowment. A lot of these big foundations have an endowment. And so they, they protect their principal and then they earn X amount per year and they take the proceeds of those investments and that gets deployed in grants. That's a really nice sustainable model. Well, if there are projects launched on behalf of the foundation, and then I'm getting 10% every time there's a trade that goes directly into the foundation, it's an alternative option for a self-regenerating, effectively an endowment. Super interesting. Yeah. So that's the experiment right now. All the proceeds are going in. Right now, I think they're trading it. And this just happened, whatever, a couple of days ago. People have been minting, but didn't get the name. I think they're trading at like 15,000 plus, and there are like 60,000 mints. So it's at least a few hundred grand to probably a few hundred grand to the foundation because I'm investing in these scientists and these studies so early, that's meaningful money. Right? Yeah. It's not okay. cancer research. Like, yeah. This is early, early stage. The stuff. next creative stage. Yeah. Right here. Changing the endowment game. These are big things. Yeah. Well, Tim Ferriss, Howard Stern always does. You've done it all. <laughs> You've done it all, Tim. <laughs> yeah. It's been so incredible to hear your thoughts on everything. Yeah, it's really a treat. And it is so fascinating to hear all you've done and all you will do. I think you have not peaked. I hope not. Your yeah. best is in front of you. My hairline is peaked, but you know, hopefully my <laughs> creative endeavors. You look good peaked. to me. Yeah. I would buy that NFT right there. <laughs> there it is. Thank you, Tim Ferriss. Thank you. Kendra Cast. Thanks. I hope you enjoyed our show today. If you want to check out any prior episodes, find us and subscribe at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. Feel free to leave a review as well as it helps people find the show. You can also follow us on social media at KindredCast for behind the scenes photos and info. Listen to KindredCast on SiriusXM every Saturday and Sunday at 2 p.m. Eastern on Business Radio Channel 132 or stream shows on demand in the SiriusXM app. Thank you.